This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We have lots to talk about on this Juneteenth. We also, of course, want to give a shout out to Monty's Boston Red Sox, and we want to celebrate the first day of summer coming. But first, we want to turn to a serious matter in the news last week having to do with the resolution in significant degree of the Western Massachusetts drug lab scandal cases. And we have with us to discuss that, the lead counsel on that case, Luke Ryan, a partner in the Northampton-based law firm of Sasson Turnbull, Turnbull, Ryan, and Hoos. Luke Ryan, of course, the, the star of this story, the star of the film that was made about this story, and one of the most extraordinary legal sagas that has ever occurred in Western Massachusetts. So, Luke, thank you so much for being back with us on the show. Let's start at the beginning. What is and was the Western Massachusetts drug lab scandal? Then I'm going to ask you what happened last week, and then we'll fill in the in-between. Luke, talk to us. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Bill. So uh, in 2013, a chemist at the Amherst uh, Drug Laboratory on the campus at University of Massachusetts was arrested uh, for tampering with evidence in, uh, that was entrusted to her for analysis. Every drug case uh, that gets prosecuted, um, the, the, the samples, the alleged narcotics, are sent to a laboratory for testing, and Sonia Farrakh worked at one of these laboratories, and following her arrest, uh, efforts were made to find out, you know, was this a one-off or was this some, uh, the end result of long-standing misconduct? Uh, as it turned out, it was uh, something that was pervasive. It began with her basically first day on the job in 2004 and extended until her arrest in 2013. So uh, as a result of that um, litigation that unearthed this, um, approximately 16,000 uh, drug cases were dismissed. Uh, that added to a list of 21,000 drug cases that were dismissed as a result of unrelated scandal in Boston involving another chemist named Annie Dukan. And so uh, after these 37,000 cases were dismissed, uh, I, along with two lawyers from Boston, Dan Marks and Bill Fick, brought a class action uh, based on a Supreme Court case that came out in 2017 called Nelson v. Colorado that said when you're convicted of a crime and your conviction gets vacated and you're not going to be re-prosecuted, and as a result of your conviction you had to pay money, uh, the state has to give you back your money. So we filed this uh, lawsuit in 2018, and on June 1st, uh, the parties reached a, uh, a settlement in the class action uh, that will now uh, go to a superior court judge in Suffolk County uh, for approval. If approved, um, it is estimated that uh, this class of um, over 30,000 folks will get uh, approximately $14 million back that they paid in fines and fees to the state. Let's back up a bit. When the drug lab scandal first broke, it wasn't a drug lab scandal. It was, oh, a chemist made a mistake, and it probably happened a couple of times, and we're done. So said the then Massachusetts Attorney General. Bring us up through the denial and denial and denial and denial of the officials of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to what really you uncovered, you and your colleagues uncovered, in the drug lab scandal. Sure. So I think an important context is Annie Dukin in the Boston case had happened in August of, of 2012, and when that happened, everybody acknowledged this was a big deal, that um, she had been dry labbing, uh, which means essentially eyeballing instead of doing actual instrumental analysis on samples, and it was acknowledged by everyone in the system, including the Attorney General Maura Healy, that this was going to um, undermine thousands and thousands of convictions. When Sonia Farrick was arrested in 2013, January of 2013, Attorney General Healy, the uh, commander of the state police, everybody, Deval Patrick, said this is not Annie Dukin. This is no defendant's due process rights were violated in any way. We got her the very moment that she strayed from the straight and narrow. Um, Let me interrupt there for a second. Was, was this Maura Healy or Martha Coakley who was AG at the did time? Did I say Maura Healy? It was Martha Coakley. Okay. It was definitely Martha Coakley. Okay. Uh, who before 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 the Maura Healy fans start calling, we've been, just <laughs> yeah. made that correction. Okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Bill. Um, so, in any event, um, uh, we I, I represented some individuals who had cases that were in a you know awaiting trial and and defendants' clients whose cases had already been resolved and were in post conviction status. And myself and other attorneys began 
um, attempting to uh, figure out the scope, timing and scope of Sonia Farrick's misconduct, and we we hit a, a, a number of uh, impediments along the way. And after uh, litigation in the Hamden County Superior Court, uh, based on the evidence before him, then Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Kinder determined that Farrick's misconduct extended back to July of 2012. Um, one of the great frustrations in that litigation was we had been provided with reports that said at the time of her arrest, Sonia Farrick had, quote, assorted lab paperwork in the trunk of her car, and I and other attorneys really wanted to see what that assorted lab paperwork was. And in the fall of 2013, uh, Judge Kinder made his rulings and um, took representations from the Commonwealth that essentially assorted lab paperwork was assorted lab paperwork at face value. And uh, the, the, the scandal at that time appeared to have been confined to about a six-month period. Um, about a year later, um, after Sonia Farrick's criminal case had been resolved, I managed to get access to that assorted lab paperwork and discovered that it contained uh, numerous uh, um, diary-like entries that uh, Ms. Farrick had made indicating that uh, she had her uh, drug addiction extended much further back. She was in, in treatment uh, with ServiceNet. We managed to get the ServiceNet records, and that's what established the timeline that this was something that she'd been dealing with literally since the first day she walked in on the job in August of 20, uh, 2004. For those of our listeners who have not reflected back on the Western Massachusetts drug lab scandal and Sonia Farrak for some time, hearing the story again makes me think, how could this happen? How could it go on for years and years and years that a chemist performing essential functions functions in the criminal justice system is falsifying evidence day after day after day, using the drugs herself, and no one in authority has a clue. And this goes on for years and years and years and ends up with 14,000 illegal false convictions. How did, how did that happen? Well, I think the way it essentially happened was you had a, it's really expensive to wage a drug war. And so the drug warriors among us who kind of set up the system of doing it, really tried to figure out how to um, turn what uh, uh, what should have been a scientific laboratory into a, a, fact, a factory for processing uh, drug cases where efficiency became the end-all, be-all, and the scientific method took a real back seat. So did the oversight, the quality assurance, the quality control that we demand um, in other laboratories was completely absent in Amherst, and that's what I think basically allowed Sonia Farrick to engage in this misconduct uh, for this very close, nearly a decade. So be a bit more specific, if you would, for us, please, Attorney Luke Ryan. A drug sample would come in from a local police department. It would go to the UMass lab, and what would happen? So the sample would arrive at the laboratory. There would be a, um, in theory, there was supposed to be a, a separate person whose job was to take the sample in to weigh it, um, and then would assign it to one of the chemists. Um, because the Western Mass lab was perpetually understaffed, uh, Sonia Farrick would often uh, take on that initial role of accepting the submissions and would do things like um, turn down the heat sealer when uh, certain departments would bring their, their samples in so that the bags wouldn't really seal, and then she could have easy access to um, the narcotics of her choosing. But in a typical case, the, the, what was supposed to happen is the evidence custodian would assign it to the chemist. The chemist would perform a series of um, tests, would, would confirm the identification of the substance, essentially write an affidavit, return the substance to the evidence custodian, who would then alert the police department that they could come and pick it up, and it would be ready to be introduced at, at trial, along with the testimony of the chemist who did the analysis. Which was really not testimony most of the time. What, 95, 98, 99% of the times, it would be a certificate from the drug lab, and the defendant would, faced with the uh, uncontradictable evidence from the state lab, yes, this uh, substance was, in fact, the drug that is alleged to have been in your possession, uh, and or that you bought or sold, and uh, no way to contest that. And many, many defendants would, faced with that, uh, plead guilty. 
others would go to trial, but Farrakh actually had to testify relatively few times. Is that right? That, that's correct. Up until 2009, uh, she never had to testify because before the Supreme Court case of uh, Melendez-Diaz versus Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that piece of paper was all that the, the prosecution ever needed to put into evidence. They did not, uh, defendants in Massachusetts before that Supreme Court decision did not have a, a right to confront uh, people like Annie Dukan and, and Sonia Farrick. Uh, that changed in 2009, but as you said, uh, we have a, a, a what the Supreme Court has called a system of pleas, not a system of trials on the criminal side. And so 95% of these cases, uh, that certificate, which was produced in discovery, was enough to um, put defendants in a position where they felt like uh, they had no, no choice but to plead guilty um, and, and did so um, in, in, in large numbers. So... As a result of that, well, let me back up one, I have one more uh, backfill kind of question for you, Luke Ryan, and that is, how was it that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which was prosecuting uh, Sonia Frack for her misdeeds, her crimes at the, at the drug lab, could not know the extent of what she did, and therefore would not disclose any of that to defense lawyers who were have, who had the responsibility of defending their clients, but couldn't do it because the Commonwealth, well, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, we don't know anything about what Sonia Farrakh did. How did that happen? How could the Commonwealth have such willful ignorance of the evidence in front of their own eyes? Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about the Commonwealth, it's obviously made up of a lot of individual actors and at different, from the supervisors at the lab to the prosecutors to the supervising prosecutors of the, you know, the Western Mass drug cases to the Attorney General's office and its uh, prosecutors who handled the Farrah case and investigated. I think there was different uh, motivations, um, but I think there was an overarching just desire uh, to um, accept at face value that this was uh, just part of the process, that this, these were good results, that, um, you know, there's an assumption that every, you know, unidentified what powder or uh, that gets seized by the police is a narcotic. As it turns out, about 5.5% of submissions that the police believe are cocaine or heroin or marijuana uh, turn out to be something completely innocuous. And and so these chemists perform an important role in this process. And, and this is a case where oftentimes, you know, defendants, indigent defendants, are really relying on these chemists, even though they work for the state. I mean, oftentimes they handle these substances for a minute, two minutes. They don't take it back to a lab and test to confirm it's, it is what it's purported to be. So um, you just had a really, really vulnerable population. You had a system that was... Um, really emphasizing efficiency and speed, and you had a uh, a defense bar that um, was was really overwhelmed during this this period with um, uh, the the volume of drug cases that uh, were prosecuted and frankly are continued to be prosecuted. And to be clear, Sonia Frack was using the drugs personally. She wasn't taking them and reselling them. She was a she had a drug dependency, a serious drug dependency. Is that right? Right, and what you're really left with is, is for, for a lot of these folks, the, you know, you, you have to question the reliability of testing performed by somebody who was, um, by her own admission, um, using crack cocaine, using LSD, uh, having hallucinations while she's performing uh, this in incredibly important analysis at a scientific laboratory. We are speaking with Attorney Luke Ryan. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to hear about the settlement. How much is the settlement for, Luke? Uh, it should be approximately $14 million. Right after this. Stay with us. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families, and we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, 
Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Lundgren Honda. Experience it. Now, it isn't just one thing. It is everything you expect when you're looking for your next car, your first car, or to repair your car. Award-winning customer service, no hassle, negotiation-free pricing, and friendly, familiar faces you know and trust with your vehicle. Hi, it's Rob from Lundgren Honda. Summer is heating up, and we want you to be ready for those summer road trips. So we are offering a summer road trip inspection. One of our trained technicians will perform a thorough multi-point inspection of your vehicle, along with an air conditioning and performance test and front-end alignment check. This will ensure that your vehicle is safe, your AC is working to its potential, and the alignment readings are within spec. All this for $49.95. So please call, stop by, or go online to LundgrenHonda.com and make an appointment today. Consumer Satisfaction Award winners two years running. Lundgren Honda proudly provides you with an award-winning experience. See the latest selection of new and certified pre-owned cars at 409 Federal Street and LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19 and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. Do you act a certain way around your partner because you're afraid of what they'll think or say? Are you afraid of what they'll do? If you're in a relationship, it's your right to be healthy and safe. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, or physical, you have options, and Safe Passage is here to help. It's all free and completely confidential. We are here for you. Call our hotline at 413-586-5066 or visit safepass.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney Luke Ryan, who is lead counsel on the Western Massachusetts Drug Lab case, cases, and of course, the hero, deservedly, of the movie that features the story of the Western Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Drug Lab cases. Luke Ryan, last week there was a settlement announced. You told us just before the break for some $14 million. What does the $14 million represent, and who is it going to? Right. It represents the uh, fines and fees that uh, now exonerated drug defendants uh, paid that they're entitled to get back based on a Supreme Court decision called Nelson v. Colorado. Uh, there are 10 classes or categories of fines and fees that the, uh, the Commonwealth through the Attorney General's office, to its credit, uh, have agreed to uh, return. And as I give this list, I think it's, it, it just is a taste of what uh, a, a very, in most cases, poor criminal defendant has to face as they work their way through the, the legal system. They are uh, victim witness fees, probation supervision fees, there are court costs, there are fines, and in drug cases there are SIR fines, there are GPS monitoring fees, there are, there's the fees that you get assessed for um, having somebody like Sonia Farrick uh, process the alleged narcotics in your case, there are parole fees, there are, when you get, commit a felony, uh, you have to give a DNA sample, and the state police charge you $110 for that. And then uh, up until 2016, when you were convicted of a drug crime, uh, you lost your driver's license and had to pay $500 to get it back. So um, essentially, you know, you get the poorest of the poor people in Massachusetts who are uh, forced to pay for the privilege of being prosecuted. For the purpose of balancing the books for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, it is, to me, 
a horrifying system. You take the poorest people in the Commonwealth and then you charge them money they don't have and keep them immersed and enmeshed in the criminal justice system and they don't make a payment and then they go back to jail and they're held and they go back to court and they go back to jail because they can't pay the fines or the fees or the probation fees or the serve fines or the GPS monitoring fees or the parole fees and goes on and on. They can't pay them. And so they're back in the system. They could, it's like you can never get out. It's like a horrifying Alice in Wonderland with very real-world consequences. I'd appreciate your thoughts about that and that aspect of the system, Luke. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it, it, the, the word that's popping to my head right now is gross, but it's so much more than that. I mean, there are accounts of people who, um, when faced with these, these kind of criminal legal debts, um, have had choices to make about, you know, putting food on the table. These are folks who are, you know, they've been sentenced and they're as part of their, um, you know, reentry. They have all these other conditions that they're trying to meet. They're trying to work. They're trying to, you know, in, in these kind of dead end jobs that they're they're limited to because they've got a drug conviction on their quarry, and they're they're having to make choices about, you know, are we going to eat three meals uh, this last week of the month, or am I going to pay my sixty-five dollar uh, probation supervision fee. There are stories of people who committed crimes who stole in order to get money to pay their probation officers so that they wouldn't get uh, violated uh, on their probation. So this is this is something, to his credit, uh, Governor Baker uh, in January proposed eliminating uh, probation supervision fees, parole fees, and, and the, the extraordinary efforts that uh, state actors like probation officers who otherwise could be out there trying to help people find jobs or find better jobs or get them into recovery programs. Instead, we've got this surveillance model that is all about, you know, collection, making sure that they're getting paid and, and, and trying to jam people up when, when they when they can't. So it, it's not a system that's um, at its core about public safety. It's not at its core about um, rehabilitation. At its core, it's really about cruelty. Do you know where that proposal from Governor Baker's stands in terms of eliminating some of these fees? Uh, I, I wish I did. I do not. I know that it got some press in, in, in January when he, he put it out there, but I, I, in terms of where it is in the in the state house, I, I can't say. Tell us this, if you would, please, Luke Ryan. You told us earlier in our conversation that you filed this lawsuit to recover from the state uh, the fees, all these fees you've mentioned that uh, persons who are charged with crimes uh, pay. And then you told us that it was last week, four years later, that there was a resolution for what seemed to me to be a, seems to me to be essentially an adding problem. You have these many defendants, presumably you know who they are, and someone must have a list, uh, hit the button on the computer and tell us what, what the state owes them back. The law is pretty clear, I think. Um, why did it take four years for the Commonwealth to agree? So during this whole era of uh, the Dukin and Farrick era from 2003 to 2013, um, you had this extraordinary push from the legislature to courts saying, as part of your budget, uh, you need to collect these fines and fees. They had something called retained revenue where the courts could um, – they would get 10% of the, the fines and fees that they, they took in. Um, but if they, if they didn't, you know, meet their quota, that meant staff layoffs and, and you know, other places where they were just going to have to trim fat. So you had this incredible push to grab this money, but you didn't have um, the personnel, the infrastructure, the training, uh, any of it to keep track of what came in. So this was a at the trial court level and other, you know, places where they were taking this money in, this was not computerized. This was carbon paper. This was receipts and shoeboxes kind of stuff. And so when um, all of these uh, drug lab cases were um, dismissed and you were left with the Supreme Court saying, you got to give this money back, um, we were essentially starting from scratch and trying to um, figure out what this class of folks actually paid. And there are stories... Uh, uh, a, a probation officer in Lawrence uh, during this era stole over $2 million in um, fines and fees that were coming in. Auditors were going in to courts across the Commonwealth and saying, like, look, this is not tenable. The way this is being done is y y this just wouldn't fly in any other arena. This, uh, 
the way that the Commonwealth is account, uh, accounting for the money it's taking in is antiquated, and it's a recipe for um, for theft, for misappropriation, and and so that's what we waded into. And I say we; it was um, Dan Marks and Bill Fick and I, and attorneys from the office of Maura Healy, who were left to try to figure out how can we do justice here to a group of folks where this basic accounting um, didn't really happen. So you had to create the entire accounting, which, as of last week, we know from the proposed settlement, comes to some $14 million. For how many people? Um, it's about a little over 30,000 people, approximately 37,000 dockets. There were some people who had multiple cases. Um, and the way that the, the, uh, the class action settlement is structured is this period of time that we've had has been about um, calculating presumptive uh, refund amounts for every individual class member. And then what we're, we're doing to reflect the possibility of that presumptive amount not truly accounting for everything that was paid, every class member, even if their presumptive payment amount is zero, will receive $150 on top of that uh, figure. So, um, you know, the hope here is that for the majority of class members, uh, the, the settlement will provide more than they, uh, they paid. Um, there is also a dispute resolution uh, provision in there. So if somebody says, look, I got receipts for um, these probation supervision fees that my presumptive payment amounts don't reflect, they will be able to bring that to the attention of the settlement administrator and potentially an arbiter and, and um, make sure that they're not getting underpaid as a result of this settlement. On one hand, Luke, this is another, I think, extraordinary victory for you and your team uh, in making some semblance of justice out of this horrifying injustice called the Western Massachusetts drug lab scandals. But even with the payment, it strikes me that persons who were accused and convicted um, based on this falsified, uh, uh, I think, uh, violently uh, corrupt actions by uh, uh, the state chemist, uh, the people still lost jobs. They still lost their apartments. They still were denied uh, uh, help that they might have received towards for educational grants. They still were uh, discriminated against and exploited in a hundred different ways. And nothing here, as far as I can tell, makes any of that right. That's 100 percent true. There's uh, an Elmore Leonard quote I like that you, you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. And essentially, you've got this class of folks who finally have, have beaten this rap, but the ride that they took either to, um, you know, to prison, to houses of correction, uh, to, to wherever they went in the system, um, it, 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 it resulted in these catastrophic consequences. These were, in many cases, people who were really right on the edge. And this put them in a position now years later where, we're coming in and saying, hey, guess what? You get your, these fines and fees you paid back. And I've had countless phone calls with people who say, well, what about the two years I lost uh, my liberty or the, the, the marriage or the custody and the job? And, and it's been, frankly, pretty heartbreaking to have to say, look, this is a class action lawsuit that, that is based on a, a very limited um, Supreme Court case. And that those, and, and I'm sure the fines and fees in your case are way down in the list of ways that you were you were injured by this. And I'm sorry to say that this settlement, while it doesn't foreclose you from seeking relief for those other harms, isn't going to pr pr provide any. And it's um, the the graciousness that I, I get from people after you know, uh, uh, rarely does the messenger get shot, but it's still it's a difficult message to convey. We're speaking with Attorney Luke Ryan. We need to. Take a quick break here. We're going to come back and we're going to ask Luke this question. What are the take-home lessons? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst Town officials say the North Common in front of Town Hall will receive a significant amount of federal money. Originally, the Town Council planned to use money from the Community Preservation Act and the Transportation Fund. The project, which includes removing the Main Street parking lot and replacing with the plaza and landscaping, 
will now be funded with an $827,000 Land and Water Conservation Fund grant, along with CPA money. A public forum will be held on June 27th to talk about the revised spending. Leiden will be holding their annual town meeting tomorrow outside the town hall at 16 West Leiden Road. A special town meeting will be held at 6 p.m., and the annual town meeting will immediately follow. The residents will vote on using $45,000 for upgrading and replacing fire and emergency medical equipment. They will also be asked to vote on a $1.9 million budget, a 5.5% increase from the previous year. And United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Regions is receiving two large donations, one of $100,000 from an anonymous donor in Franklin County and another of $76,000 from the late Hale Johnson of Coleraine. United Way gives close to $1 million every year to support local social service agencies, such as the Brickhouse Community Resource Center and Community Action Pioneer Valley. They also run a diaper bank for local families. Mostly sunny, windy today, a high of 74 to 78. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low of 46 to 52. Tomorrow, summer begins at 5.13 a.m. It's a mostly cloudy day, but a few breaks of blue possible. Also the chance for a sprinkle, a high of 74 to 78. Scattered showers Wednesday in mid-70s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El comité de la Cámara que investiga la insurrección del Capitolio aprovechó su última audiencia pública del jueves para centrarse en la presión que el entonces presidente Donald Trump impuso a su vicepresidente Mike Pence para que revocara su derrota en las elecciones de 2020, a pesar de que le dijeron repetidamente que era ilegal hacerlo. Dijeron los asistentes de Pence al comité del Congreso que investiga el ataque del 6 de enero de 2021 contra el Capitolio. El comité está tratando de mostrar cómo esa presión incitó a una turba enfurecida a sitiar el Capitolio ese día. Pence, que presidía la certificación en el papel ceremonial tradicional de vicepresidente, no cedió. Los legisladores del panel de nueve miembros y los testigos que testificaron en la audiencia descubrieron que la decisión de Pence evitó una crisis constitucional. En la mañana del 6 de enero, mientras Pence emitía una declaración pública en la que dejaba en claro que certificaría los resultados legítimos de las elecciones, Trump le dijo a miles de sus seguidores frente a la Casa Blanca que esperaba que Pence reconsiderara. El comité mostró un video de ese meeting en el que Trump dijo que si Pence no lo complacía, no le agradaría en nada. Esa presión afirma el comité puso a Pence en peligro inmediato después de que los amotinadores marcharon hacia el Capitolio y reclamaron por su muerte. En un video reproducido por el comité, un partidario de Trump dijo que había escuchado informes de que Pence había cedido y si lo hacía, iban a arrastrar a políticos por las calles. Cuando Pence evacuó el Senado y se refugió en el Capitolio, los amotinados frente al edificio gritaron ¡sáquenlo! Se construyó una guillotina falsa en el National Mall y la gente que irrumpía en el edificio gritaba ¡cuelguen a Mike Pence. El comité también mostró fotos nunca antes vistas de Pence después de haber evacuado a un lugar seguro en el Capitolio, incluida una foto en la que estaba leyendo uno de los tweets de Trump. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based attorney Luke Ryan. Luke Ryan is, of course, the attorney who receives deservedly the credit for breaking open the state's corrupt and, I think, just catastrophic uh, uh, processes for declaring that people were guilty of drug crimes when, in fact, the state was inventing the evidence uh, of those crimes because the chemist was using the drugs herself and not performing the tests that she certified under oath uh, that she had performed. An extraordinary story. We were talking during the break, Luke Ryan and Monty and I, about the lessons that this, that this uh, series of events uh, teaches. And you had brought back to our attention, Luke, the disaster that is the war on drugs and I would appreciate your sharing those thoughts, sentiments, and analysis with our listeners. Sure. So when, when the Dukan scandal broke uh, in November of 2012, they had um, 
these legislative hearings just trying to you know figure out what happened figure out why and and and, and how big the problem was and and there was a state rep and I, I forget his name but he was just exasperated and he he said at some point you know this is supposed to be the easy part this is supposed to be the easy part of our drug prosecutions and we give the, the the sample to the scientists and 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 we can stop um you know worrying about the hard part and the hard part of drug prosecutions um that's that's dealing with confidential informants that's dealing with undercover cops uh doing all these things that become you know the basis for these you know in- incredible um uh movies and docu series like we own this city uh where you just see this rank corruption phantom informants wrong door raids all these awful awful things and i think what this scandal illustrates is you can't even do the easy part in a war on drugs a war on drugs taints uh, everything that it touches and over 50 years in now, a half a century since Richard Nixon um, uh, launched this all-out global assault on this drug menace, drugs are cheaper, they are more potent, and they are more plentiful than they have ever been. We have wasted trillions of dollars. We have destroyed um, hundreds of thousands of lives uh, to get to a worse place than we started. And I think it is just one of the most indefensible public policies of my lifetime. It has spanned my entire lifetime. Uh, they talk about uh, the prohibition of alcohol as a noble experiment. Um, and, of course, you can debate that for, for a long time. But um, having gone through uh, prohibition as a country and having to uh, take the uh, unprecedented step of having to amend the Constitution to repeal a prior amendment, there is no excuse for what we've been doing the last 50 years. This is this is not a noble experiment. This is an ignoble uh, repeat of a failed experiment. Um, and unless and until uh, this country um, fundamentally changes the way that it handles uh, this public health crisis, uh, uh, then you're, you're going to um, not get to a better place. And so I, I'm not interested in, you know, reforming how lo- drug labs or the oversight of them. I, I, I think that if you're going to, you know, use your energy and, and, and time on the planet to, to take something away from this and, and go, it's to stop the war on drugs. We just have about two minutes left, Luke, but I would appreciate your t- diving a bit deeper into that concept for us. When you talk about uh repealing or revoking or amending the war on drugs, what more specifically do you have in mind? I think you have to legalize these these substances. You have to, you know, treat them the way that we've now, we're, we're, we're treating marijuana, um, you know, and, and I think that you have all these overdose deaths. These are all preventable deaths. The reason that people are dying of overdosing is they don't know what's in the substances they're getting. Um, there's no regulation of, of these. Uh, there's no ability to to use them in environments where you know uh, you know safe injection sites have have made you know uh, some headway in some places uh, in the country, mostly in places like Canada. But um, yeah, the the whole the, this war mentality is is completely backwards. This is this is a public health issue. Other countries like Portugal deal with it as a public health issue, um, addiction rates go down. And, and just if, if you think about the extraordinary resources put into this prosecution of, of people, mostly poor people of color, uh, being used uh, to, to deal with the public health side of this, I think you just look at a, at a, at a world that's a much safer um, place, a place where, where people have a chance to um, you know, overcome addiction if their use of these substances leads them to a place where, where that's what happens. Luke, one last question about the case. You announced the settlement last week, the $14 million for those who paid all of those fees that were uh, improperly imposed. What court does and what judge does this go in front of, and when do you expect it to be actually f- the settlement to be finalized that is approved by the court, and when will checks be sent by the Commonwealth? Good question. So we're awaiting preliminary approval from a, a judge of the Superior Court in Suffolk County, which is the county for Boston. Um, when that preliminary approval comes, um, a settlement administrator will be authorized to send notice to all class members, which will announce 
the time and date of what's called a, a final fairness hearing, where a to-be-assigned judge will determine whether or not the settlement is reasonable and adequate and fair to the class. And once approved, um, once a judge finally says, yep, this is fair, then uh, within 30 days, the uh, settlement administrator will, will send checks in the mail. This is not one of those settlements where anybody's going to have to make a claim. Uh, it is going to be uh, as, as user-friendly as, as possible. And in the event that, for some reason, uh, checks don't get cashed or they um, are, are delivered, uh, we have three uh, nonprofits that we're really happy about that are going to uh, receive residual funds in the case. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm really hopeful that this settlement is approved and that people can get this money back uh, at least before the end of the, the calendar year. And, and then a year later, if checks are, aren't cashed, then these three organizations will, including uh, close to home community legal aid, will um, have a chance to do some really good work uh, on behalf of, of class members and, and people like them. We've been speaking with Attorney Luke Ryan. Luke, congratulations. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you from all of us from the bottom of my heart and our hearts for the work, the Oaks, just the amazing legal work you have done. Thanks so very much, Luke. Thanks so much. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy, save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Pacific Printing in Northampton has been a leader in screen-printed and embroidered apparel in the Pioneer Valley for 30 years. With 8,000 square feet of production, Pacific Printing produces thousands of custom garments for businesses, schools, teams, and events. Let the team of Pacific Printing create a professional look for you. Visit us at Damon Road in Northampton or OceanUpPromotion.com. I'm going down to the corner store. It sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We share with you some thoughts. This our fish wrap on this Juneteenth, this holiday, where the United States, well, I can't say we're coming to grips with our racist past, but we are at least acknowledging it in a way that we had not done before. Juneteenth is a national holiday. I would bet you, Monty, that 
25 years ago that most white or Americans had not heard of Juneteenth. And here we are. So I hate to say, well, this is progress of a sort, but it is, I think, uh, in terms of recognizing and acknowledging the, the sins of slavery. When you think about the last two federal holidays, they are now Juneteenth and Martin Luther King Day, which I think are important steps in the right direction. I mean, it is um, a history that has been overlooked for so so much of history, the African-American part of history. The fact that there is a Black History Month elucidates the point that it hadn't been incorporated into the overall history of the United States. Now there are two federal holidays that are addressing specifically Black African-American issues in this country. And I think if we don't emphasize those kind of things, we'll never learn about it to the extent which we should. And I think where we are going, I think that is a step in the right direction. There's a lot of other steps that need to be taken. Um, but, you know, it's also important to celebrate once in a while and to when you do have a step in the right direction. And I think this federal holiday of Juneteenth is one of them. There was a great celebration I went to in Greenfield in the Energy Park yesterday. And, you know, they had people from all different types of backgrounds getting together and eating and listening to music together and hearing speakers. And it was a, it was a great celebration. I fear, I wonder whether or not Juneteenth could be commercialized. It already has been to a certain extent. And just like every other holiday, although I actually haven't seen a ton of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, birthday merchandise, which is good. Um, there are already things that you can go and buy that are Juneteenth branded, which does strike me as somewhat odd, but you know, and of course, the ultimate question is: is what actual steps will the country take to try to remedy the uh, ongoing consequences of slavery? And that gets to be a very difficult political fight, because the idea of reparations is something that this Congress is never going to. Uh, endorse or take up or fulfill and make this playing field level. Uh, and so in some ways, Juneteenth, as you say, is a, a step towards recognition. And if we don't uh, acknowledge our past, we're certainly not going to be able to confront it or remedy it. On the other hand, I'm not sure that there's really much, much uh, fortitude or wherewithal in the country, in the body politic, to do much about it. I don't mean to be discouraging and negative, but uh, I, I, where is where is where are the great reforms that we were going to see after George Floyd? Where is this revolution that was going to take place in in policing and uh, and the like? Um, it seems to me, in some ways, that yes, Juneteenth is here, but the moment of actual change may have passed. Well, I think that there's some truth to that, but there is also some positive steps in the right direction there, too, when you think of the, the Department of Community Care in Northampton. And so it doesn't go as far as many people would have liked to have seen it, but it's farther than it would have gone if they weren't pushing so hard. And I think, you know, communities all around the area are working towards different ideas about policing. The whole Greenfield story about the um, the police department and a jury finding the police chief guilty of racial discrimination I mean, would that have happened before the era of the murder of George Floyd? I'm not sure. It was basically a free pass to be a police officer and do whatever you wanted in front of a jury, even a grand jury, as you have told me many times, would in, which would in uh, would indict a ham sandwich, meaning that the police were charged with something, but the grand jury wouldn't find enough there there to even bring it to trial. And right. I think that may be changing, and I, I hope that it's changing. Well, a grand jury, in fact, as that old cliche goes, could indict a ham sandwich because you can indict anybody for anything. The grand jury has that kind of authority. It also has the authority to not return what's called a true bill. That is an indictment. And when police officers were, cases were put before grand juries, in fact, almost never was an indictment returned. Well, it was, I got to sit on a grand jury several years ago and to see how just, I mean, the low bar that you're trying to cross to bring charges, it's uh, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt and it's not unanimous. It's kind of, is, right. there, enough, is there enough evidence here to uh, charge a crime? That's kind of a non-standard standard, but whatever it is, it's really low. And then you have to have a majority vote, I believe. Yeah. It doesn't have to be unanimous. And um, to think that the, the atrocities that we've seen several police officers commit pre-George Floyd, that they wouldn't, a grand jury wouldn't indict at all 
is very disheartening. And now I believe that is changing to a certain degree. And maybe Greenfield, not it being a grand jury, but an actual trial jury finding... It was a civil case, we c- should point out. Right. Civil case saying that the police chief was guilty of racial discrimination is kind of a big deal. And which brings me to the recorder, the weekend recorder, Greenfield Recorder's uh, headline, What Does Future Hold for City Policing? Acting Chief Advocates for Unarmed Crisis Intervention Model. Let me read two sentences. Dateline Greenfield. This is by Mary Burns, staff writer. As the police department deals with the impact of $425,000 in cuts to its fiscal year 2023 budget, conversations are beginning to happen regarding the future of policing in Greenfield. I've been a police officer. This is a quote for 33 years. And the only thing about policing that is consistent has been change, says Acting Police Chief William Gordon. I'm very excited for the future. This is a situation that we'll deal with and we'll work through and will only become better. The story goes on to report uh, that following the May 6th jury verdict that found Greenfield Police Department and the police chief, Robert Haig, that they and he had discriminated against former police officer Patrick Buchanan, the department's only black officer, when he was denied a promotion in 2014. And in response, the city council cut the police department's budget of four some $400,000, uh, a very significant cut for the police department in the city of Greenfield. And, well, reigniting the what has already been going on in Greenfield uh, in terms of responses, non-armed responses, non-police responses to 911 calls. And that is a program that has already begun. It's being implemented. And the question is whether or not this the police department can actually uh, – it implement that program in, in, in scale or with scale so to actually achieve cost savings as well as uh, better service and safer services and unarmed services and more productive responses from the department. And I think that question's still up in the air. I think so too. It is also happening in Northampton. It is happening in uh, cities and towns up and down the valley. And perhaps on this Juneteenth, we can take some pride and give recognition to both uh, citizen participation and public officials who have responded and said, yes, we will have where and when we can a better police response by not having an armed police response, but rather by having uh, civilians and trained professionals be able to address the situation, de-escalate it, and so no harm is done, and perhaps very much that some good is accomplished. We're going to leave it there on this Juneteenth. Thank you so all so very much for being with us. Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. GreenfieldSavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, Please visit our website at NC. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock.